You are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Depression Session on Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio Dr. Kenneth Wing. Ken is an author and retired psychologist. We'll be right back with Ken, but first let's talk about tired. So, last couple of weeks I have been kind of excruciatingly tired. And I can't say that I've been feeling depressed. But I was just curious, what's what's the difference between physically not feeling like getting out of bed and emotionally not feeling like getting out of bed because they seem tied together in my mind. Last week, George talked about one of his tricks is to sleep no more than eight hours because allowed to sleep as much as he'd like to, he would sleep a long time and then it wrecks his day and depression settles in. And I've been feeling every day like I don't really want to get out of bed. It doesn't matter if I get eight hours or 10 hours or five hours. I don't feel physically like I want to get out of bed. I've actually been feeling a little low and maybe even ill, but no specific thing that I could put my hand on except feeling a little off. So I looked up online and found an article called Depression and Fatigue, A Vicious Cycle by Rachel Nall. R-N-B-S-N-C-C-R-N. And it says the main difference between these conditions, between depression and fatigue, is that chronic fatigue syndrome is primarily a physical disorder, while depression is a mental health disorder. There can be some overlap between the two. Symptoms of depression can include continuous feeling of sadness, anxiety, or emptiness, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, or worthlessness, disinterest in hobbies you once enjoyed, eating too little, or too much, trouble concentrating and making decisions. There are also some physical symptoms that can can occur with a depression. People may have frequent headaches, cramps, stomach upset, or other pains. They may also have difficulty going to sleep or sleeping through the night, which can lead to exhaustion. People with chronic fatigue syndrome often have physical symptoms that aren't commonly associated with depression. These include headaches, joint pain, tender lymph nodes, muscle pain, and sore throat. Now, I don't have chronic fatigue, and currently I'm not suffering from depression. Yay. But there is kind of a moment when I'm feeling low and feeling I wasn't feeling up for doing anything. I physically just felt tired. And I suppose I could be fighting off a cold. And I did feel my stomach did feel off the whole time. But when that happens, it worries me. I feel like, is that depression just around the corner from me? Is this going to put me off and then I'm going to dip back down into a depression? And I just kept telling myself, let yourself have a little extra rest. You're probably run down. You're doing too much and you're just physically tired. But when you suffer from depression, you have to have these conversations with yourself because you don't know when you might slip back into a bad place with your depression. 
And so a physical, a normal physical exhaustion that somebody else might experience when they're having a really busy week and too many things to do and, you know, feeling a little bit sick or off or fighting off a cold. When you have depression, you just look at it a little differently. It adds a little anxiety and a little worry to your day. So for all of you out there, I hope you keep healthy and get enough sleep if you need it, but don't sleep too much. (laughs) And that you have a, a, a way of looking at your depression that helps you get through the day. Today we have with us in the studio, Dr. Kenneth Wing. Ken is an author and retired psychologist. Hello, Ken. Welcome to the depression session. Well, thank you for having me with you. Yeah. So what's new with you these days? What are you working on? Well, a few things. One, I just recently finished co-editing this book called The Nettle Tree. It's speculative fiction from the West. And I thought... Your listeners, especially folks here in Tucson, Arizona, would enjoy reading it. So I brought you a copy. Oh, thank you. That's excellent. And uh, Very cool. Yeah. The Nettle Tree. What a great name. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I'm working on currently is I'm co-authoring a memoir with a gentleman from South Sudan. He's one of the Lost Boys. And uh, he asked me to ghostwrite his memoir, and I said I wouldn't ghostwrite it because that really would not be a good thing to do. But I would co-write it with him uh, because then it's honest. And what's the difference between co-writing and ghostwriting? Well, ghostwriting, your name isn't on it. Co-writing, your name is. Ghostwriting, you get paid a fee up front. Mm -hmm. Um, And co-writing, you are in it for the part of the royalties. Okay, so and it's really a collaboration. You know, it's a collaborative effort because ghostwriting would have been so dishonest because then when people read the book and then interviewed him, it would have been obvious to them that he hadn't written the book. Right, right. And then it could still have the same content but right, have both yeah. names on there and yeah. like... Yeah, and be in your tone and his tone. and Well, I hope I'm keeping very close to his what his voice would be if he were more fluid in English. Right. Because he's lived here for a long time. He came over here, oh, Lord, almost 30 years ago. Wow. He is an American citizen now. But um, he he also grew up in, well, the camps, really the refugee camps. It's quite a story. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, it will help inform the world. Yeah. And that, those are my big things that I'm involved in. Uh, one of my friends was an aid worker and worked in Sudan mm. with refugees. She has her degree in psychology and, and yeah. was working with reunification of children with their families. Well, it's interesting you mentioned reunification because then my friend, uh, just recently went back to South Sudan after so many years away and reunified with his family. Wow. And that is the section of the book that we are writing now. We're really close to the end. Wow, that's wonderful. I think Phoenix has a big population of Sudanese, specifically what were called the Lost Boys, right? Yes, yes. Um, There was a large Lost Boys group there. And he was one of the first. Wow. He was one of the first. Yeah, 30 years. That's definitely the beginning of everything. Very interesting. So, Ken, tell us the story of your depression. Well, as a psychologist, I I worked with a lot of people who were diagnosed with depression. So I'm going to be telling a little different story 
However, just up front, uh, I do want to let people know I have my own diagnosis. It's uh, PTSD, not depression. Um, actually grew up with von Munchausen's by proxy, if you know what that is, if you can imagine some of the issues I have. And yes, I have used medication uh, under medical supervision, so you know, I'm very pro-using it. I also had uh, my own psychoanalysis as a shrink, of course. That's uh, always a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying all of that so people understand where I'm coming from when I say the next thing, which is I don't like diagnosis. When you get a medical diagnosis, like you, let's say you go to the doctor and you have a headache, and they say, oh, well, you have this problem with your eyes. Or maybe they say, oh, you have this problem with your neurology or whatever is causing it. That's the meaningful diagnosis. To me, the diagnoses such as depression or bipolar disorder or something like that are identifying a cluster of symptoms. And I have a, and always have had a problem with that. The only reason that we use that in the mental health field is because insurance companies and Medicaid and Medicare require us to label people. You have to put down those numbers on the forms. And I think that's a very destructive thing because it stops us from looking at what really is happening People, you, you and I, Laura, we're, we're very complex. What's more, we live in a very com complex setting. So I start with the word system, okay? Now, system is anything where you have unit working together. For example, let's start with a couple little systems you have right in your home. You might have a heating or cooling system, and it has a thermostat, and it has a piece of equipment. And that piece of equipment, let's say it's a heat exchanger, which is what we have in our home, that heat exchanger now interacts with other systems called, for example, uh, salt water <laughs> power or Arizona power system or whatever the system is. And that, in turn, <laughs> it has in it other systems for not only other uh, heat exchanges and the like, but big power plants and a grid. And so we're talking about this interplay of systems. And things can go wrong at any level in this interplay of systems. Let's go back to... Oh, let's use another system in your house. Let's talk about your toilet. <laughs> I think I think toilets are fascinating. First of all, anybody who has ever dealt with the symptoms of depression or uh, mania or any, probably almost any mental health issue, uh, probably is very aware of toilets because one of the systems that is almost always gets involved is our elimination system and our gastrointestinal system. But if you think about the toilet, it's a very simple system. 
that has in it something to control the amount of water. And that's a feedback loop. And that's that little bulb, usually, that goes up and down, and it tells the toilet to stop getting more water. Now, that's what we call an attenuating system, a feedback loop. It's supposed to stop the water. Sometimes, though, we have problems where a system, instead of attenuating, will amplify. That's, for example, if that uh, bulb doesn't go up. Let's say it fills with water and stays down. And then it becomes an amplifying feedback loop. It keeps the water flowing. And we all know what that leads to. A long mopping session all over the house. <laughs> Something you want to avoid, right? <clears throat> okay, so. Most, from my view, most of what we call mental health issues are amplify, amplifying feedback loops, dysfunctions. So, for example, let's say you look in the mirror. And I'm using this example because it is very closely related, actually, to what people experience as the depression, which, of course, is, usually starts with sadness. But if you look in the mirror and you look at yourself, this is a feedback loop in which you, hmm, my hair is okay, my, you know, whatever. Let's say that you look in the mirror and what you see is ugliness. Something we label, again, because we have to put those labels on, body dysmorphic disorder, which is often very much integrated with, as I say, sadness, so it also gets labeled depression. And so you're looking with, the, you have this feedback loop. And you're looking at it, and you see yourself as this horrible, ugly person. Well, the more you look at it, the uglier you feel. And the uglier you feel, the more you look at it. And it becomes an amplifying feedback loop. Now, that amplifying feedback loop can be not just in your own head, it can be in your family. Let's take a kid who maybe gets in a little bit of mischief. And mom says to this kid, you're impossible. Bingo! Amplifying feedback loop begins. Now, the complexity of that gets greater and greater and greater. For example, consider a whole family structure. And I, I'm thinking now of, of a girl, a teenage girl, who came into my office at the time, and everybody was telling me how she was a conduct disorder, secondary to probably depression. I started to deal with the family. And yes, mom is causing a lot of this. But then I get the whole family in, multi-generational. And younger sister lets on that this girl, who is the patient of record, that's the one that we make the diagnosis of, whose name happened to, we'll call her Carol. So Carol, little sister, says, my sister Carol's not so bad. 
He says, um, but Grandpa, really, you know, has all this, these issues. So I turn to Grandpa, who's there, and I say, you, you, this, oh, yeah, we got to control this kid. Well, I start intervening in the whole system. And what I do is I get Dad, who's very quiet, to start taking responsibility for Carol. I say to Carol, you, instead of asking Mom before you go out and play with your friends or whatever you do, you call Dad at work. Dad, can you take that on? And Dad says, yeah, I can do that. I said, and Mom, instead of your disciplining Carol, if she gets in trouble, you call Dad and Dad will do that. And Dad, can you do Yes, I can do that. So I disrupt the whole system. That was on Friday. On Monday, they show up first thing when the office opens. They don't have an appointment. We can't keep this going. I said, why can't we keep going? Well, I said, Dad, have you had problems? He says, no, 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 it's not me. It's Mom. I said, she said, by, by Saturday morning, she started getting depressed and unhappy. By Sunday morning, she was in bed. She wouldn't even get out of bed. <laughs> why not? Because she was reacting to her childhood terror of her father. Everything hinged around Grandpa. Well, so what's my point? My point is that what we call depression, that set of symptoms, often is part of a bigger system, a larger system, that is going on all around us. And we have to be wary of deciding that it's all this simple biochemical thing. Is there biochemistry? Of course there is. Sometimes it's only biochemistry. Sometimes we have to stop the biochemistry first. But often it's a whole big system. And that's why when I started to write and it got, you know, I got burned out as a shrink. And I said, hey, I want to do something else. And I'd always loved books. So I started to write. And one of my first books, the one I hope you folks will want to read, is called Memoirs from the Asylum. Now, it's fiction. But what I started to think about was how the asylum itself works as a system to not encourage wellness, but to encourage the disorders that, in a sense, the very world of treatment is often part of the world of sickness. So I'm going to tell you a quickie story that is one of the, it's a true story. It is, it is one of the stories in the book. There was a boy, we're going to call this boy Johnny. And Johnny was on a ward for autistic children, a nonverbal ward. He was about nine and a half at the time. And another psychologist who was starting his internship, a friend of mine named Vern, Vern comes to the ward and Johnny comes up to him and says, can I look at your pen? Vern had one of these fancy, at that time, pens that had many colors. He says, boy, that's a neat pen. And Vern, being a very nice guy, Stands there talking to Johnny. Then he catches up with the supervisor who had been showing him around. And he, she says to him, where have you been, Vern? 
So I was talking to that little boy over there. I didn't want to be. She says, you've kind of been talking to him. He can't talk. And she says, what do you mean he can't talk? I was talking to him. She says, he can't talk. He's on the nonverbal ward. He can't talk. So beware of diagnosis is my, my message. Think about the whole world and how it interplays with your, quote, depression, unquote. And please try and get yourself, if you're going to look for therapists, look for therapists who have a view that it isn't simply a matter of giving you a medication. Not that the medications are bad. They're not. They're very good. They're very helpful. But there's more to life than a pill. And remember, if you want to enjoy that book, uh, it's called Memoirs from the Asylum. My name is Kenneth Ween, W-E-E-N-E. I'm on Amazon. I also have a website, and you might even find some interesting things there. Like recently, I did an essay on the Rorschach and my first experiences using the Rorschach. Uh, for those of you who have ever looked at those ink blots. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for your story. And it hits a bunch of points that I've been thinking about lately, actually. We have a meetup group called the Depression Session Meetup Tucson. And the next session for it is to medicate or not to medicate. That is the question. Mm -hmm. And people have very strong feelings about that and very strong opinions about it. And I think that I was just talking to um, someone who had been on the show before and she said her depression's pretty much gone now, and she's gone off of her medication mm -hmm. for a while because she just isn't feeling depressed. And she said, I don't know where it went, and I don't know that it'll stay away, but everything's pretty good right now. Can I share a quick story oh, that sure. might help Absolutely. with that? Okay, years ago, a family brought their son to me. They had already gone broke going to a psychoanalyst, and they had heard I was a whiz. So they brought their boy, Tommy, to me. And Tommy had weird symptoms. For example, he could only wear sweatpants. He could only wear certain kinds of T-shirts. And, you know, they couldn't find any biological reason. There were no touch allergies or anything. And I said, this youngster needs to be on what we call antidepressants. I think this is a, a processing disorder. Um... And at that time, we didn't have the SSRI, so we were using tricyclics. And I sent him to a friend for medication. But first, I had to convince the parents. Now, remember, these parents had literally bankrupted themselves going to therapists. It took me six months to get them to agree. Okay, two weeks on medication. Kid's fine. Mm. Wow. Okay, so... They said to me, well, you're wonderful. You're a genius. I said, no, I'm not a genius. I, I, maybe I am, but hey, you know, it was pretty obvious to me. So I saw the kid for a little while, helped them deal with the concepts of behind all of this and all, sent them nice family on their way. About three years later, they called me. We're having the same problem again. What should we do? So I brought them in. I said, well, obviously he's gone off his medication. Oh, how did you know? <laughs> how did I know? Because this is an internal processing. So I said, so you need to get him back on. Took me another couple months to convince them to go. <laughs> he does. A few weeks later, he's fine again. 
stays on the medication. And we go through this another cycle. Believe it or not, we go through the same cycle again three, three years later. And I call him in, and the boy is, like at this point, he's a young teen, and I call him in, and I say, look, your parents don't get it, but you do. I say, you can go off your medication after you're stabilized, but you know your biology. Your biology is going to kick in. Of course, at that time, we didn't know about serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and we didn't know about uh, the receptor sites. I said, your biology is going to kick in every three years or so. I said, when it does, you need to go back on your medication. Mm-hmm. And you will be the first one to know that. So don't come and tell your parents, I can't wear jeans anymore. Come and tell your parents, it's time for me to go back on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they get up to me, oh, okay. <laughs> so three years or so later, I get a call from the parents. And the father says to me, he says, uh, Ken, he says, uh, my son says he should go back on his medication. What do you think? I said, listen to him. He knows his own body. <laughs> well, and I think that's the thing. So so there's that of like talking about, you know, she firmly believes in medication, but also believes that she can not take medication and just be aware of herself when she needs it, that it can be a stopgap to get you through something. And then you can find other things that work for you. And if you need it again, take it again. Absolutely. That was exactly what we were talking about. And then another note on that was just that I have found in doing this show and hearing the stories of depression, that there are as many ways of experiencing depression as there are people. Mm -hmm. And that, Everybody has a different toolkit that works for them. And it won't always work. Sometimes you need this or you need that. But that 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 depression, one of my guests described it as the bad gang leader of a gang of bad characters. So that, like that. <laughs> yeah, that there's depression, but she's like depression and anxiety and bipolar were her mix of things, but she felt like depression was at the head of it. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people experience it that way, but others experience that anxiety is the is gang the, leader. The gang leader. And for some <laughs> who never get it really depressed, but they it's only the mania. Yeah. That, that, uh, but the thing is, when you do look at your life, and, and anybody should, the one thing I would urge is don't just look at that one biochemical issue, but also understand that the, the, those supports are often other things. It's like alcoholism. People go to AA, and some people are much more successful using AA than others. Well, one of the things that determines your success in using AA is your willingness to get involved in all of the social connection because that becomes a health-giving and a health-sustaining and supporting system. So the person who just goes to the meetings is much less likely to actually have a successful recovery than the person who, in addition to going to the meetings, goes out for coffee afterwards mm-hmm. and goes to the yoga and takes part in the in the get-togethers because you, what you're doing is you're creating a new social system to support you. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, because, it, gosh, it's not me who drinks. It's my, my significant other or whatever. I do have a word of advice for people who are living with an alcoholic, which is, 
often, of course, a symptom of what we call depression. Anyway, alcoholism. How do I get my husband, my wife, whoever, to stop drinking? Very simple answer to that. The best thing you can do is go to Al-Anon. Because as you build that healthy system for yourself and those that toolkit, the other person's system changes. Mm. And we are all caught in this interplay of systems. Ken, thank you so much. That is a perfect way to end the show. Thanks so much for being on the Depression Session. My pleasure. I want to mention again that if you found some of the content of today's episode triggering, please seek professional help and call 911 if you feel like hurting yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. To listen to the podcast, or if you're interested in being on the show, contact us at www.thedepressionsession.com. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio Tucson with music by Septahelix. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you. You're listening to KTDTLP Tucson, Downtown Radio 99.1 FM.